Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to Let's Talk Tribe. This is your host, Jason Lukarts. Um, it's Wednesday night this week, not the usual Thursday. The Indians just finished beating the Orioles, uh, taking two of three of them in a, in a big series. The win tonight puts them in front of the Orioles in the wild card standings. They're three games back of the Rays right now with uh, Tampa Bay playing later tonight. So it'll be either two and a half or three and a half out. And, uh, yeah, so 74 and 65, I checked Fangraphs, their standings update uh, within a few minutes of the end of every game. And they're now projecting 87 wins for the Tribe and giving them a 20% chance of making the playoffs. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure, and my guest tonight might be able to confirm this, I'm pretty sure Fangraphs standings do take into account the schedule the rest of the way, which for the Indians after this series is pretty light. The Royals are the only uh, only winning team they play the rest of the way. So. Uh, after losing a couple in Detroit over the weekend, I feel pretty good right now. Um, you know, like I said, the, the schedule is going to get easier. And if, if the bats get going, uh, the Indians definitely still have a run in them, I think. Anyway, I want to get to my guest because he's someone I'm excited to talk to and I think you'll be excited to hear from. Uh, he's known to Indian fan, at least Indian fans who read Let's Go Tribe regularly, because uh, he's developed a pretty strong love for Corey Kluber and Danny Salazar this year. Uh, my guest this week is editor at Fangraphs, Carson Sestuli. Carson, welcome to the show. Hi, it's uh, very exciting to be here. Jason Lukart, is that how I say that? Yes, that that is yeah. right. Yeah, thrilled um, is how I'm feeling about it. <laughs> Good. Um, so I want to get to Kluber and Salazar in a second, but I'm wondering, um, you're you know, editor at Fangraphs now, but unlike a lot of baseball writers, you've also got a like a proper Wikipedia page. And I don't know if you've looked at it, but there you are listed as American poet, essayist, and sabermetrician, uh, which probably isn't the usual resume for someone who writes about baseball. Um, so I'm curious a couple things. One, how you sort of got into baseball originally. Uh, and then two, is baseball, you know, most of what you, you write now? Do you do other writing still? So um, how did you get from, from, from that to Fangraphs? Yeah, uh, so um, let's see. Uh, I've, I've, well, I've always been a baseball fan, um, and I've been a fan of. Let's see, I've been a fan of other sports as well, and I've uh, also always had. Um, I've been very excited about uh, keeping records. Um, it, that, that was not. It, uh, that was not always. Um, of course, when I was at a young age, it was just anything I would play. I think for Sega Genesis, there was uh, maybe one of the early NHL games, like 91 or 92. Yep. I, I think I remember playing a, like an entire season with the St. Louis Blues, maybe, or maybe the Vancouver Canucks. Canucks. And, um, yeah, right. And, and, uh, and essentially just like recording all the, like all of the goals and assists um, um, by hand and then tallying them up in the season because the, um, at that point, the, there was really no, uh, no hard drive. Right. Yeah, precisely. And and so uh, I, I suppose re- recording events generally uh, has has always been uh, particularly exciting for me. And then of course, um, when uh, you know, uh, it started for me, I guess before Moneyball. I guess it started with Nair. He was um, Rob Nair he, uh, when he had his blog at ESPN. They introduced right. me to. Uh, some advanced concepts um, or more advanced concepts in, in baseball analysis. And then, uh, you know, um, the Internet, of course, helped to expedite th- that that uh, that relationship, that research. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's probably a pretty typical path uh, so, so far as that's concerned. Um, and that's happening simultaneous to uh, just um, being excited about the things that words can do and, um uh, you, you know, so I was reading um, some good poets, and uh, I still think that 
uh, I still think that there's a, a great deal of compatibility, I guess, or similarity between, for example, um, an excellent baseball pitch and and um, the, the the best poems. And, I, and I'll um, I'll qualify that by saying that almost all poems are bad. So anyone who's listening saying, oh, well, poems are poems are kind of dumb. They are most of them are pretty bad. Um, and until you actually um, read some of the better ones, and these are not necessarily the ones that you'd be introduced to in uh, you know grade school or even college, right? Uh, the, then uh, then you won't get it. But yeah, the best poems are very much like uh, Danny Salazar's split change when he's throwing it at his best. <laughs> do you do? Uh, I mean, I don't know. You know, either just for pleasure or on the side of do you do you do uh, much non baseball writing these days? Yeah, uh, so I, I, both in my baseball writing and my non-baseball writing, I'm very interested by the idea of brevity um, and, and I guess how much you can get out of the fewest number of words. Um, uh, so th- this is something that works very well for for blogging, obviously. Uh, I would say it's it's probably criticized unduly. I think that um, – or, 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 or perhaps there's a sort of blanket criticism that has to do with – Brevity, uh, uh, but it's uh, I would know, but brevity has been something that's been uh, praised certainly in the past. So, for example, like um, Marshall and Catullus, I, I was uh, I studied Latin. I was a Latin major in college, and um, Marshall and Catullus are two great early Roman poets okay. um, from like first and uh, first century BC, first century AD, and uh, they valued very much brevity, uh, and so. Uh, this was, you know, the idea of being like charming and, and witty was um, um, highly valued, and I think that that um, I think that that's still a possibility. I do agree that the, I mean, there's a lot of non- nonsense on the internet too, but that's just because there's a lot of nonsense among people. Yeah, <laughs> so everywhere, uh, there's a pretty strong correlation between those two. Um, so yeah, so in my own like private writing. Um, or whatever I, I, I uh, with a with a, um, a a friend of mine, uh, I um, I have a site called thenewenthusiast.com uh, that we just will like put up sort of aphorism size, uh, very, rather short uh, writing experiments. And sometimes we're there like twice a day, and sometimes we're not there for weeks. It's just uh, right. it's just a, all a question of how things are going. Well, and I feel like Fangraphs has really turned into. I was talking to Mike Bates on here a couple of weeks ago, and. Uh, you know, he's, he writes everywhere, but he's been writing. But I feel like fan graphs has turned into a really diverse, uh, you know, between the not graphs and the beer graphs. And, uh, you know, I feel like there, there's a lot of different things coming out of there. It's not just baseball anymore, which is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah you, I, I think – oh, go ahead, sir. Oh, I was just going to add, you know, when what, – what, what pulled you into fan graphs? How did that come about? Well, it seemed. Uh, uh, let's see. I've been well. I've been writing for Fangraphs for four years, and I've probably been reading Fangraphs for five, I would say. Um, and I was, uh, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I, I wanted to write for the site was because I enjoyed it quite a bit already. Sure. And I guess the nature of it, and I don't, and I think that this probably is a, a common principle among all of the, the sort of, you know, among Fangraphs and also its sort of satellite. Um, sites is that there's a there's a there's a spirit of um, curiosity uh, when it's at its best or when we're at our best and at, uh, simultaneous to that um, there is a need to uh, to su- to support to I guess to work at the top of your intelligence always so if you're trying to make a point uh, you know don't don't set up straw men to oppose it uh, you know look for evidence you know in or you know, in our sort of more irreverent uh, sort of writing, um, I guess always look uh, to uh, get people, make people enthusiastic as opposed to, uh, or you know, get them excited about something, um, uh, then then uh, tear down uh, people. Uh, so I guess that's the idea. Um, and so I, you know, I, that um, that's maybe a, a slightly nebulous response, but uh, there seems to be to me. Uh, something there, there seem, these, these concepts seem to be associated. So let's pretend that they are. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> um, so talking about being a kid and playing NHL '92 or something like that, I think we must be about. I'm 33. We must be about the same age because uh, that would have been the heyday of my video game playing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
have been it must have been you know mid to late '80s when you became a baseball fan. Is that right? Yeah, in fact, uh, we are precisely the same age. Uh, it turns out, oh, okay. and also 33. Yeah, yes, yeah. I would say probably my first memories of baseball are of the 1986 World Series uh, between the Red Sox and the Mets. I grew up in New Hampshire, and uh, okay. uh, my family were all uh, very uh, dedicated and remain uh, remain so Red Sox fans. Uh, and so that series, it's it's one of those sorts of things, right? Where I don't know if those are if the, if I actually have memories of it or if I just have seen so many replays of it and know that I was alive then. But I do remember, I do remember being aware of baseball at the time. And uh, I remember, um, I'm not a Mormon, but um, I remember that uh, after that 86 season, I think Bruce Hurst came to the uh, church of the Latter-day Saints in Concord, New Hampshire. And uh-huh. or to talk, I guess, I don't know if to convert people or not. I don't know. But uh, my dad, who's also not a Mormon, uh, brought me and uh, I guess uh, at that point a six-year-old and we ran to the front immediately after uh, whatever the service or talk was over and uh, we got Bruce Hurst's autograph. This was very important. Um, I remember thinking it was very important to my dad. Uh, so uh, so that's what we did. And uh, of course, Bruce Hurst was quite a good pitcher then. Uh, so that was, yeah, so that was sort of one early moment where I got the sense that uh, whatever was happening was important Um and then, uh, yeah, and, you know, just uh, certainly being around Boston, I, it's, it's, it's not always uh, second nature to, um, to to people who are raised in other areas, but certainly in Boston, you don't have to be a baseball fan to be a Red Sox fan. Uh, those, um, those things are, are not mutually exclusive, or they are, they could be, they could be exclusive, I suppose. Uh, you could just be, like my, I remember talking to my uncle the other day, he said he's not a big Red Sox fan, and yet he knew he knew about Xander Bogarts and like almost precisely when he had been promoted. Right. And, you know, it, 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 so that's like a thing. It's like you can just be around and know about Xander Bogarts. Yeah. Uh, sort which, of which I think. Way in. Yeah. In um, other markets that may, that may not be the case. So as a Red Sox fan, um, like I, I said in the intro, I mean, I think at let's go tribe, at least you've come up a pretty fair amount this year because you've written a lot uh, and put together a lot of, uh, quick video gloops, uh, GIFs, GIFs, is it, I can't remember which one it, it's supposed to be. Anyway, of Corey Kluber and then a little later, Danny Salazar. Um, do you, as a Red Sox fan, are you still just kind of drawn all over the place to baseball? Do you feel like writing for fan graphs, that's an obligation? Um, you know, what, I guess what, what, what first pulled you towards Corey Kluber and then Danny Salazar? What was it you saw or became aware of that was appealing to you? Yeah, well, so I should say that um, I I was emancipated from my Red Sox uh, fandom after the 2004 World Series. Uh, it was not a it was not a conscious decision, but it was um, it was an immense catharsis, and and I was very happy after it. And I was not really ready for the season to begin in 2005, and I think just um, by dint of you know repetition, like I. Started, you know, I went into the 2005 season thinking that it was going to be just like other ones, but I never really right. felt um, committed, and I haven't felt very much committed since. Um, and then after reading baseball perspective, the baseball perspectives book Mind Game, um, which is well done, and it basically dissected not not necessarily why the Red Sox won, although that was part of it, but also why they hadn't won for years. And um, at that point, I said. Um, uh, it was I had sort of been I, I had felt manipulated because the Red Sox were never going to win when they had a sort of miserly uh, ownership group and um, you know um, poorly informed front office and then everyone was a little bit racist or more racist <laughs> other times. Right. So uh, I, th- I thought um, I didn't like the fact that I had been perhaps manipulated even though ultimately the payoff was pretty excellent. Um, uh, with the Red Sox victory in 2004, um, so gradually, and it wasn't again, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily on purpose, but gradually I sort of became a fan of the game um, in a in a in a larger way and became excited by, you know, well-run teams, um, and then and now it's definitely to the point where individuals who, about whom there's something exceptional are, are the thing to which I'm probably most attracted. With Kluber, that's the 
the, the thing that's most exciting about him is he's a right. He's a 27 year old. He's in his age 27 season, right. and um, he's only entered the season with 67 innings, I think. Uh, and yet this season, his defense independent marks have been crazy. Um, his actual run prevention marks have been have still been above average, and um, not not as low as, as his uh, defense independent numbers, but still. Right. Um, and then. He also throws 95 or 93 to 95 with his two seamer. His his slider, his cutter, uh, his changeup are all excellent. And so, I guess the the question that that you know I'm looking to answer always with Kluber, um, and I don't know if he even knows is how is something like this possible, right? I mean, you need to ask him, sure. and you need to ask um, you know the the I guess members of the Cleveland front office and coaching staff because it, it's, it's a very rare situation. It probably happens more with pitchers than it does hitters, but still rare. And and that's the thing which that's drawn me to, to Kluber. Yeah, I think, you know, he there's there's a couple people he, he was injured in the off season for a little while and you know there was a little talk from a from at least a small segment of the Indians fan base that I know of that was that cared at all and we was oh that's a bummer. And I think for most people it was who cares? He's you know he he's not a part of the team really anyway, you know, in terms of someone you're looking to get contributions from, uh, I certainly didn't expect anything like this. Um, and you, you mentioned in an email that you had a chance to to talk to him recently. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, uh, I guess, uh, so we're talking on a, right, a Wednesday night. Um, I, I, I'm, my guess is that this, uh, piece will go up tomorrow. Uh, yeah, yeah I was able to, to, to talk via phone uh, with Kluber. I think, I'm not sure if he was back with the team yet or if he was still doing rehab. I might have caught him sort of in between. Um, but yeah, we talked for, we talked for just, you know, about 10 minutes. And I, I think that, I mean, probably Cleveland fans will, will know this even better than, than I, but he's very understated uh, and is definitely like he's living within the present moment. You know, any question I ask him, which sort of, um, Encouraged him to reflect on you know, the, and I didn't ask it in such a douchey way, but but um, to read like you know the meaning of what he had done, or you know even just uh, if he was sort of aware of, uh, of this sort of um, rarity of of his particular career arc, he he didn't really he was not really interested in in contemplating that, and and there's probably you know if that's how we need to do things, then that's fine. Um, right. I will say. Uh, we did get uh, into a, a little bit more of a of a back and forth with regard to I um, and this will be the, the sort of bulk of the piece that goes up. Well, uh, I asked him um, to help me sort of, I guess, uh, uh, consider a, or to to write essentially a biography of each of his of each of his pitches. And one unique thing, and and this I I hadn't even known this until I talked with him, is that you know on, on the one hand. He didn't necessarily know why everything had come together for him so nearly. But on the other hand, right. he's added uh, his two most frequently used pitches just within the last two years. His um, his two seamer, I think, is less than a year old, and his cutter is less than two years old. And uh, you know, he, he uses those pitches more frequently than he uses um, his other ones. So I'm right. guessing just um, integrating those in his repertoire and then learning how to command them has probably been uh, has probably been a big difference for him. Did he say anything about the impetus for for adding those pitches? If they were suggested by someone, or yeah, it actually seemed like uh, in both cases it was working with. Um, and uh, here's where I'll prove my my, uh, my ignorance, but I, with whomever the AAA pitching coaches in the Cleveland organization, I I think that's I think that's what he said. Don't don't quote me right. entirely, yeah. but uh, yeah, but it was it was uh, in tandem with a pitching coach, and I don't you know I don't know if that's necessarily. Who offers that up? But you know, it's not uncommon at all for pitchers, especially um, if they were in the minors or if they enter spring training, to try and add a pitch. Especially right. someone who, like Kluber, appeared to have some physical gifts, um, had had kind of always struck out batters, but but didn't, but you know, uh, maybe demonstrated some command and or control issues. Uh, I think it would, you know, you're, he's going to try and get to the major leagues, and if you, you can just add to your repertoire and have command of different pitches or replace a pitch, um, you know, because he, he used to throw a four-seamer pretty frequently, I guess, um, and he doesn't really now. 
think like you know five percent right. of the time, maybe less. Uh, I, you know, you could see someone um, trying on new things until they're really successful, and and he you know, he appears to have found the uh, a pretty effective combination at this point. Yeah, I mean, on a on a per inning basis, he's been the the team's best pitcher this year, and uh, right now he's scheduled to come back uh, Saturday. At one point, they were going to have him. They were calling piggyback with Scott Casimir on Friday, and I guess you know maybe each throw three or four innings or something. But now, the last time I looked at the schedule, Kluber is set for Saturday against the Mets, and then Danny Salazar is set for Sunday. So it's going to be a big weekend uh, for those guys. <laughs> you're going to be busy at Fangraphs. How about Salazar? What when when did he catch your eye? Actually, Salazar caught my eye right at the beginning of the season. I uh, I, I write a weekly piece. That, uh, that comes out every Wednesday at the site, at least during the season. Uh, this is the first year I did it, and uh, it's probably my favorite thing to write um, at the site, uh, at least on, on the main site. And it's, it's called The Fringe Five, uh, Baseball's Most Compelling Fringe Prospects. Essentially, the idea is to uh, look at those players who did not appear on any preseason top 100 lists and um, – Look at you know look at that population and, and which among that population which players among that population uh, are sort of most compelling or you know showing the most promise. I mean it's a it's a pretty broad definition, but generally speaking, it's players who are either um, way better than they seem to be or are or are effective in a weird way. Uh, like this player for St. Louis, uh, Mike O'Neill, um, he's just sort of like this weird corner outfielder who never strikes out um, and walks 15% of the time. Um, so he's not going to be a star, but he just has a weird skill set that I think that would appeal to, um, you know, to, to fangrass readers or people who are sort of curious about that thing. But Danny Salazar showed up immediately because um, he he. Can has I interrupt pretty- you just ask because I'm curious about this. When you say he jumped up immediately, so when you you're looking for guys beyond that top 100 um, mm-hmm. prospects, like, like most baseball fans, prospects excite me because of you know the, the possibility of who knows what they might turn into, and for a team like the Indians. That that's appealing, um, but I also I I don't have a great prospect knowledge. I mean I know the Indian system pretty well because you know they're the team I, I cheer for and team I write about. But beyond the Indians, you know I don't know, you know past the teams, you know past those top 100 prospects. Where what do you draw on to kind of find the guys you find? Is it talking to scouts? Is it watching video on your own? Yeah, so the way I'll, the, the sort of first step I take is to go through all of our, uh, the, the minor league leaderboards and to, I calculate, um, in, within each of the minor leagues, I calculate essentially, um, index stats that are based off of defense independent metrics. So for batters, it's going to be, uh, you know, um, uh, home runs, walks, and, and, and strikeouts. And then for pitchers, it's actually just, uh, uh strikeouts and walks. And it's, it's, for pitchers, it's a, it's a regressed form of, I don't know what you call it, uh, KWERA. I would say QUERA, but that sounds like an LGBT like rallying call. I don't, which it, you know, it's neither here nor there. But uh, it's essentially yeah, it's strikeouts and walks. Um, uh, your ERA estimator, and I just I produced like a probably what is a poorly calculated regressed version of it. But it's that's that's essentially like the first layer of screening, and. Um, Danny Salazar showed up there immediately. I think he was pitching in the um, Eastern League with Double um, uh, A. Uh, what's your Double A team there? Uh, Akron. Yeah, sure. He was Akron, pitching with Double A Akron. Could have been, oh, uh, uh, the Carolina League, maybe. Well, um, in, in any event. No, I think that's yeah. Double A. Oh, okay. Yeah, is that a Carolina? In, in any case, whatever he was doing, he was posting uh, excellent defense independent rates. Uh, relative to uh, the other players, other pitchers in the league, and so I said, "Oh, this is uh, so." Uh, what I'll do is that's like my first like uh, step in the screening process, and then you sort of get together, um, you know, X number of players whose numbers are impressive, but then you try and, and then what I do is I try and look at, uh, you know, which of those, you know, sort of learn more about all those players, right? And it gets easier right. as the season goes on because you know a lot of the same players keep um, popping up, but I'd never heard of Danny Salazar, and then, uh, you know, I will look for some, you know, for pitchers, the first thing is to look at velocity readings, and I saw right. velocity readings of, like, 95-plus, and I'm like, how, how have I never heard of this guy? Why isn't he, 
you know, why isn't he all around? And then, and then I watched it with right. a video, and I, I think I recorded gifts of him at some point, or I did that a number of times, and uh, noticed that he was, you know, his split change uh, was also uh, pretty effective. Although that's that's yeah. it's harder to pick up sometimes in the minor league video because, you know, there's a lot of off-center cameras, and so you can't always tell the changes apart from other sorts of pitches. Um, but he's good, is what I figured out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he when he came up, uh, it was, I think, early July, and he came up and uh, pitched against Toronto in his debut. I think he pitched six innings, gave up one run on kind of a, a question. You know, it could have been an unearned run. Anyway, he pitched really well. A lot of strikeouts. His second strike, start, struck out 10 Tigers. And like you said, it just it looks so good. The velocity, the movement, and his off-speed stuff. And the Indians, their pitching last year was incredibly bad. Uh, and it, it's they haven't had a lot of great pitchers, at least in recent years. And so just to watch someone come up with, with his stuff was such a big change of pace. And it was incredible how excited fans were. Um, and, you know, Trevor Bauer, who was sort of the big prospect acquisition this year that in a basically a three-way trade they gave up Shinsu Chu for. And so, you know, people were coming into the season, Bauer was the guy. And now he's kind of struggled this year. And not that that's been forgotten, but it, it, it doesn't feel like such a big deal because Salazar has been amazing. Uh, you know, it, just in terms of watching a pitch, it's such a change of pace from watching someone like, you know, Zach McAllister, who's, who's had pretty decent results, but it, it just looks different. It looks like you're, you know, it's almost like you're watching someone – do a completely different task when you see him pitch compared to a lot of guys. Right. And then you also had, well, of course you guys also had like, I feel like you had like 10 different pitchers like David Huff too, who, Oh God, David know, Huff. <laughs> well, yeah, but like guys, guys who threw strikes and, but not, not really much else. And, uh, yeah. I don't know that you, I don't know that if Cleveland has necessarily had fantastic defenses in recent years either. So it's not really a great combination. No, yeah, and I mean, even you know, this year the 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 outfield defense was expected to be great with signing Bourne and Drew Stubbs coming in and Michael Brantley moving back to left where his glove would would rate as a plus. And uh, yeah, I mean, can, we, can I ask you about Drew Stubbs for a moment? Is you know, sure. so I watch uh, between Kluber and Salazar, I watch you know uh, something like maybe twenty percent of maybe Cleveland games at this point, maybe a little more. Uh, Stubbs seems like a like a weird fielder to me because I know that he's very athletic, um, but he sometimes seems to make sort of like like strangely uncoordinated plays for someone uh, with with at least what I've been led to believe was was a pretty good deal of athleticism. Is it possible that I'm just seeing the wrong games? No, I I, I think I mean that's sort of the consensus sense is that he's a good fielder, but. Yeah, things don't quite look right, and the results haven't been as good. I was uh, Kevin Goldstein, who was, you know, like the big prospects guy for baseball perspectives for a long time and now works for the Houston Astros. Um, I was at an event that he was speaking at, and I don't even remember how it came up, but this was before 2012, so this wasn't a long time ago, you know, a year and a half ago, and and he was adamant that Drew Stubb was the best defensive outfielder in baseball, and and he was certain of it. and yeah, I mean, ha- having watched him much more this year than at any point, I, I don't feel like he's a bad fielder, but he's certainly not someone I would have picked out as as best in the game. And I don't know if that, you know, if, if, if he slipped since then or what. Um, well, defenders yeah, there's, there's usually only go, yeah, they generally only go in one direction, and that's uh, right. You know, and, and that's that's sort of like what's made the the uh, Boston's trade of Jose Iglesias to Detroit so unique is. Uh, here's, a, here's a player who's, you know, um, regarded widely as one of the, the best defensive shortstops in the game, even among major yeah. leaguers. But that's a, that's a skill that is really only going to go downhill. So essentially that's what the Red Sox are betting on, is that, um, you know, his, his main asset is is at its, at its peak right now. And, um, you know, beyond that, you know, beyond his uh, – Sort of strange offensive surge this year. That's kind of right. what relying on, but yeah. But who yeah, knows? If that's the case with Stubbs or not? I'm, I'm sure there's you know a, a decent Google search could could turn up good results if, if the aging curve, you know, position by position. Uh, you know, I feel like 
in terms of a great shortstop, a lot of it's, I don't know if, if instincts is the right word, but kind of, you know, the quick first step and the ability to read the ball really quickly and smooth glove work and transitioning the ball. I wonder if that ages better than an outfielder, or at least a little more, it's dependent on your pure speed, which is maybe going to give way before some of those other skills. I don't know. I mean, I've, I, Iglesias, who I'm sure you saw a lot of for most of this season, um, I've seen a lot of since, since the trade, uh, and he's really impressed me with his, with his fielding. And you might be right, it might not last, but it seems like he's such a strong plus with the glove right now that uh, – Right, and it also probably depends on what time. Like, I know that like JJ Hardy, for example, has a reputation of having uh, like a um, a huge arm, and right. you know, perhaps it's the case that that shortstops with like big arms. Like, I think that was the case maybe with I don't know Tony Fernandez, maybe. Uh, right. They just they or Sean Dunstan, I think, was also known for that. Just guys with huge arms, and and they can make up for other uh, maybe slight flaws in their fielding. Um, right. By being able to throw so hard, you know, it, whereas maybe if uh, I, guess, I mean, Iglesias also has a good, I mean, he's pretty good all the way around. But if there was a, if there was a shortstop who, for some reason, whose arm was closer to fringe, but, you know, made up for with, uh, you know, quick actions, et cetera, then, you know, maybe that would be a sort of shortstop to decline more quickly. Right. Well, coming back to Stubbs, I can't disagree with you. There's something you can't quite put your finger on watching him that, somehow feels like something's not adding up. Um, I think he's been playing a lot more this year than expected. I think going into the season, uh, you know, the, the lineup that was envisioned, he was going to be in a much smaller platoon role. And uh, Lonnie Chisenhall was a was a bust, but Mark Reynolds started really hot, but then he cooled off. And anyway, I mean, Nick Swisher's played a lot less right field than I think people anticipated for a combination of reasons. And, yeah, we'll see. I, I don't feel great about Stubbs being an everyday player going forward into the rest of this year and, you know, more so looking at next year, but we'll see what happens. Um, another thing I want to talk to you about and kind of looking at next year, uh, you know, we're talking about Kluber and Salazar, who, fingers crossed, are going to be a part of the rotation for the foreseeable future. Um, but the Indians have a couple of other starters. Uh, Ubaldo Jimenez and Scott Casimir are both going to be free agents after this year. Uh, Jimenez technically has a mutual option, but it's only $8 million. And the way he's pitching lately, he's going to decline that. And Masterson, who's the the would-be ace of the staff, has got one year left. Um, you know, I don't know how beyond Kluber and Salazar, how much you know about any of those guys. Um, but do you have any sense of if you if you think a team should look to sign any of those guys or extend Masterson or, you know, if you kind of, Imagine yourself as Cleveland GM. What what you would think of the rotation beyond 2013? Well, certainly having uh, Kluber and Salazar healthy is, uh, has been nice. I mean, as just looking at those at those figures between them and Casimir, those are like on a per inning basis. Those are um, Casimir, Kluber, and Salazar are three of your best your four best pitchers. Um, I mean, I don't know what. Right. I don't necessarily know what the market's going to be for Scott Casimir. I can't imagine it's necessarily yeah, going to be. I don't, be either. I don't um, think so. And, and at Let's Go Tribe, I think it was just during like a during a game thread one night in the last week or so. He had had like three good starts in a row, and he was pitching that night. And someone commented, you know, the Indians should sign him to like a three-year, thirty million extension. And I was immediately like, "There's, there's no way Scott Casimir is getting thirty million in guaranteed money. He's had." half of a pretty solid season after basically not being in the majors. There's no way he gets something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't have a great sense of what I think he, he, he will get. Yeah. It wouldn't, I guess it, it wouldn't surprise me, although uh, please believe that I'm not an expert in this way, but it, it would not surprise me if he, um, you know, came, came to some sort of deal with the Indians just because they were the team that sort of, um, right. you know, salvaged him. Uh, I, I don't. Th- I think there's probably precedent for that sort of arrangement, I, you know. Um, so it, you know, it wouldn't be surprising. And he, could, you know, as, at the right price, you know, he could be worth. Um, he's essentially on the two-win pace this year, uh, you know, like per two innings, right. you know. So paying Scott Casimir, you know, giving him a uh, two-year, yeah, two. I mean, two years twenty wouldn't be crazy because you know there's probably a good chance he'd, he'd be worth it. They they may not even have to pay him that much though. 
Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know if well, you know, I, feel, I mean, I'd be happy to have him back. I just, I three for, I wouldn't go three for 30. I mean, I, and I don't think anyone will. So I don't think that's really going to be the issue. You know, one year, 10 million, you know, fine, two years, 18 maybe, but I wouldn't go past that. Just, he hasn't, I mean, he's been good, but not great this year. And, you know, with his last right. two years, I don't have as much confidence in him. Jimenez is actually the one, and I, four months ago, wouldn't have believed I was going to be saying this, but he's the one. Uh, I mean, he's been he's been the Indians' best pitcher in, for the last two months. Uh, and after his 2012 and his first month or so this season, I wouldn't have believed. He takes a lot of grief at Let's Go Tribe. Uh, and I think people are finally starting to semi-accept that, hey, this guy's actually been pitching pretty well for a while now. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know if – my guess is – so if I'm the GM, I, I'm going to probably let another team – pay Jimenez the, the sort of money that Jimenez might be able to get on the open market. Um, it, he, he throws so many pitches, uh, you know, in, uh, to get to get to a game uh, just because of, you know, his lack of command. I don't think he's had a, you know, a, a walk rate below uh, – well, he's had very few below below uh, 10% and zero below 9%. So right. it's it, – it's just it's a, it's a bit frightening when it when it requires a pitcher needs that many pitches to get through a game regardless of, of how well he's doing. <clears throat> so I feel like you know it's also uh, just briefly inspecting it. But it seems like it's not going to be such a bad off season in terms of um, you know free agent pitchers and there's sort of some some interesting names out there. So I, mean, I guess yeah. it, it depends uh, on to what you know on how many of those pitchers are signed, but. Um, you know, they're going to be there. I think they're going to be some decent names out there that, uh, you know, I mean, I know like AG Burnett's going to be a free agent. Uh, obviously, I mean, if he's not saying, but I think probably Matt Garza, uh, Josh Johnson had sort of a weird, uh, a weird yeah. season and, and you might be able to get him for cheap. I don't, I don't necessarily know if Cleveland is in a position to, to pay the, uh, you know, top dollar, but I, I feel like spending, spending a lot, on pitchers generally is not necessarily a great plan. Better to go for sort of like pitchers who have been maybe broken recently, uh, but uh, could show promise. I mean, like the, uh, you know, the Rays uh, this year, I think they signed their first free agent pitcher in like a million years or something. Um, and that was, uh, yes, uh, pre- Fausto, well, yeah, he's not Fausto Carmona anymore, but, uh, Roberto right. Hernandez. Yeah. Right. And he's been, and he's been excellent, you know, uh, I would say copy the Rays. Whatever the Rays would do, you should do that. That's my suggestion to you. As a, as yeah, a, I, don't, uh, I don't. I don't know that I want the Indians to pay what I think Jimenez is going to get either. Uh, I think he'll cost more than Casimir in a vacuum. If it was just pick one or the other for the same amount of money next year, Jimenez is a guy I would take. Um, but I also, you know, Masterson's here next year. Whether he gets extended beyond that, I don't know. But he's back. Kluber and Salazar, if they're healthy, they go into the rotation. Zach McAllister is you know, someone I kind of feel like does it with smoke and mirrors. He doesn't blow me away with his stuff. Um, but the results have been pretty decent for a back-of-the-end-of-the-rotation guy. Uh, and they've got a couple of, I, I feel like they could lose Casimir and Jimenez and still end up having a pretty decent pitching staff. Um, and they've, you know, they've been hit, I don't know, that you would have noticed this as a non-Indian fan, but their offense has been brutal since the All-Star break. Uh, Lonnie Chisenhall was supposed to be the third baseman of the future, and he's still pretty young. I think 25 this year. Uh, but I think people have less and less confidence in him, and I don't know who's out there at third base. Anyway, the Indians, I don't think, you know, last year they went out and got Swisher and Bourne. They're not going to have a shopping spree like that again. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of, let the market get set and see what happens. But it's just nice that they have some interesting pitching options because they haven't for a while. Yeah, yeah. Whatever happened um, to uh, Brett Meyer? Where did Brett Myers go? <laughs> uh, he made three starts. I think he pitched in relief once. I think he four games at the beginning of the year. Uh, I think he threw 21 innings and gave up 10 home runs, which was the That's highest exactly. home run rate rate of any pitcher in baseball history with that many innings. Um, 
pitched in the minors for most of the season, and then uh, they, you know, they they cut him loose. Uh, and apparently, it was pretty interesting. With the day he was uh, was cut or designated for assignment, whatever the specific logistics of it were, there were a pretty interesting tweets from a couple of Indians beat writers. I don't, you know, I, I can't quote any of them verbatim, but something along the lines of like. I'm not saying the clubhouse is glad he's gone, but they're certainly not sad he's gone. That kind of stuff. He apparently turned a lot of people off. He certainly didn't work out as a pitcher, and he apparently didn't work out very well as a teammate either. So he's gone, and I suppose good riddance. Oh, so not a not a glowing uh, recommendation <laughs> no. on, on Brett Myers' behalf. Yeah. All right. Well, there you are. Um, <laughs> so what do you? At this point, I feel like the Red Sox have a pretty pretty good grip on the the East, uh, mm-hmm. the Tigers in the Central. The West is an interesting race, and then the AL Wild Card race is, is is pretty wide open right now. What's your take on the American League for the last three and a half four weeks of the season? What do you what do you envision yeah, so, happening? So um, the the way I approach any of this is mostly just uh, I'm I will be slavish uh, to the the playoff odds in terms of right. my assessment of it. it. I guess it's mostly like, like today I, I was excited to see um, and I was able to see some of it, the, uh, like the Oakland, Texas game. Right. So yep. I definitely like will approach um, these games like a spectator as opposed to an analyst. Um, sure. Because I feel like there's nothing I can necessarily offer uh, beyond that. I mean, it's always exciting, right. When a team like Oakland is winning because um because they they have uh, fans that are uh, very involved and they have a, a lower payroll than um, you know than many of their competitors and they all have sure. uh, long hair. Uh, these are all things that uh, I can appreciate. So uh, yeah, so so in that way, I, you know, it would probably just uh, you know look at the the playoff odds or whatever and say, yep, that's the team. So for right right now, uh, Oakland has a 63% chance to win the division. Uh, Rangers have a 30. Seven percent chance. I mean, they're the only two teams with anything like a chance. Right. Uh, so I'm going to go with Oakland to win that. That's going to be. That's going to be. <laughs> and my, then the Rays uh, for the second wild card. Yeah, right. These are all my hot internet opinions. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, then for, forget as an as an analyst, as a fan, and as someone who's you know who's drawn to excellence and and maybe in interesting places. Um, you know, players you're done. What would you? Which five teams who conceivably could make it? Are, are there teams you would prefer to see in the playoffs, just aesthetically? Well, I mean, it, with regards this could so be let's say NL four and I'll feel free to talk about National League teams too. Yeah, sure. So among the among the uh, in the in American League, among the three teams that are sort of on the bubble, as it were, um, I would like to see uh, Tampa Bay, um, Tampa Bay, uh, and Cleveland make it, um, and then to have Oakland win the AL West, uh, and to right. have to have Texas uh, out of it. I mean, this is just. Uh, I mean, not not that I hate Texas, but uh, I, of course Tampa Bay is. Um, they really need no introduction so far as the effect that they might have on someone who's excited by teams that are well run and uh, underpaid. Right. Uh, uh, Cleveland, of course, because it would be uh, so very cool to see Corey Kluber pitch in the playoffs. Um, um, even though he doesn't, he's not really aware of how great he is. And then, uh, you know, Oakland for the reasons that I've just mentioned. So, so yeah, so right. now if we could exclude Texas, uh, uh, of course, no ill will towards them, but uh, there's, you know, not the best. Yeah, start. but someone's uh, got to be left out. Yeah, someone's um, left out, yeah. And then, uh, well, it's a, uh, so the the thing is that I guess what's happening in the NL now, right, is like there's kind of just one thing, and that is, it's all happening in the NL Central, and that's who's right. going to win the division at this point. Uh, Pittsburgh is most likely, although St. Louis is not very far behind. No, really, nor nor Cincinnati. It's uh, so far as a you know, with with about a two weeks of play, I guess it's not it's not impossible right. to come back from the NF games. Unlikely, but not impossible. And uh, uh, there, well, of course, Pittsburgh winning everything would be great. Pittsburgh going to the World Series would be great because right. uh, uh, I think. Um, you know they they've um, you know they they haven't been 500 for 20 years so so of course that would be exciting. Uh, St. Louis is a team um, um, that is uh, they're so uh, regardless of anyone's feelings for them, they have uh, so many players um, 
who were drafted in the, like the 10th round and after, and yet are like um, vital contributors to the team. They're just shocking in terms of the uh, like the competence of their, I mean, or maybe it's luck, who knows? But it seems like it would have to be competence of their um, you know, player development uh, staff yeah. and system. Um, and so you know, it's always to see those teams rewarded for that sort of thing. It's and it's great to see like a team of uh, you know Alan Craig's and John Jay's and um, you know su- succeeding. Uh, it's Steve, right. Steve Steve Lombardavis around all around. No, it's, you know, Steve Lombard. No, it's a guy Matt Carpenter and Steve Lombardavis. Matt Carpenter, so, yeah, he's yeah, the right. guy I knew of, yeah. but not as uh, was, anything. And yeah, he's been incredible. He's been the best second baseman in baseball this year, I think. Right. So, so it's just weird that they have players like that. Um, and it's, you know, um, I, of course, I, you know, I lived for the last three years in Wisconsin, and there's not uh, a great deal of affection for the Cardinals uh, right. among Brewers fans. But um, that hasn't worn off on me too much. I, I, I actually, uh, I don't mind. I don't mind when uh, St. Louis does well. At least, not necessarily. The colors, like the, um, but the the actual players who are presently playing, it's a it's right. a nice arrangement. Do you living in Wisconsin? Do you end up going to a decent number of Brewers games just to go to games, or do you mostly just stay home and watch on TV? I, I worked a bunch of um, uh, Brewers games this year um, because uh, I have the, the BBWAA card now, which is awesome, um, and fancy. so. Uh, yeah, right. It's very fancy, and uh, so I was there a bunch, and uh, certainly when they had their playoff run a couple of years ago, that was that was really exciting. Just because anytime you're in a place and the community is excited about it, uh, sure. then it's you know, it's hard for that not to wear off on on um, you know on you when you're living there. But uh, you, you know, I, I I didn't live and die with with Milwaukee at all. You know, I you know I have a MLB TV. Subscription and uh, I, you know, I chase the best pitching matchups generally. Um, right, is how I watch. So, yeah, so I wasn't, uh, I was not dyed in the wool, uh, Milwaukee fan at all. Um, but uh, you know, they're they're they are a small market, and when they're doing well, I think it's, um, it's good, it's good. Yeah, I, I mean, you're right about the the, the, ex, the fan excitement. You know, living in Chicago. Uh, when they played the Cardinals in the NLCS a couple of years ago, uh, I randomly just picked up a ticket and drove up to Milwaukee uh, for the first game of that series. Uh, and I'd never been to a playoff game before because uh, I don't live in Cleveland and you know when the Cubs and White Sox. And I, anyway, I'd never been to a playoff game. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure at most playoff games, if you're if you're not in Atlanta where they can't sell out a playoff game, you know the, the crowd's pretty into it. But I mean, it was an incredible crowd. Uh, and I think in some ways probably a similar fan base to what the Indians have. So certainly I could, you know, appreciate the success they were having and, and feel good about it for them. Yeah, uh, you just I think that you always want to be sort of party to a spectacle. And, you know, when you uh, when you feel like you can, uh, you know, be there and, and witness something like that where everyone's excited and they want, they want the team to do well and they're happy when the team does well and the team does do well, then, uh, then it's great. Right. Well, last thing before you go, you mentioned, you know, we, you talked about talking to Corey Kluber. Um, and so is that something, is there, is there going to be an article at Fangraphs we can look for in the near future on that? I'm sorry, uh, repeat that. Uh, the Corey Kluber, when you, the, the, the interview you had with them, are, is there going to, will there be an article with that that we can keep an eye out for? Yeah, I think actually in the, uh, Thursday in the electronic pages of Fangraphs, uh, there will be uh there will be a sort of Q and A, a print Q and A, electronic print Q and A, I guess with uh, great with with uh, with Kluber. So uh, yeah, hopefully that'll be. Or if he's not starting till Saturday, maybe it'll go up Friday. I was figuring I would do it the day before he started, but uh, you you said he's starting Saturday now, so maybe Friday will be the day, um, which would also help me to uh, um, to uh, be lazy in the meantime, which is sort of one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite pastimes. So there we go. Well, Carson, thanks so much for joining me, uh, and good luck with the rest of your, your baseball following this season, and I hope we get to talk again sometime soon. Yeah, it was excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay, again, that was Carson Sestuli, uh, editor at Fangraphs, and uh, at Let's Go Tribal, we'll definitely run a link to that interview with Corey Kluber that he's got whenever it does go up, whether it's Thursday or Friday. 
And uh, if, if you're not familiar with this stuff, you should definitely swing by Fangrass and check it out. Um, it's, I, I really, you know, in terms of he's talking about the brevity, a lot of it's really short form, um, but he's got the daily notes over there. Uh, and if you're an Indian fan, just go for the Corey Kluber and Danny Salazar love. Anyway, the Indians, again, they beat the Orioles tonight, taking two of three. Uh, they are three games back of the Rays at the moment. And they've got a day off tomorrow, and they better enjoy it, because after that they play for 17 straight days. Um, but it is against weaker opponents, and whether that helps or not, we'll see. But uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they're at home against the Mets. Scott Kazmier scheduled for Friday night. Uh, and then Corey Kluber's return scheduled for Saturday, and Danny Salazar on Sunday. And right now, Danny Salazar slated to face Matt Suzaka, who uh, the Indians cut loose after he played in Columbus all season. And he has had a rough go of it in three or four starts for the Mets so far. I'm a little surprised they've still got him pitching, but maybe that's just how slim their pickings for pitching are right now. Anyway, the Mets this weekend, uh, next week the Royals, and then to Chicago to face the White Sox. I'll probably be at the Saturday and or Sunday games in Chicago. So if you're a Chicago listener and uh, you want to try to meet up at one of those games, just uh, you can find my email address at Let's Go Tribe or drop something into the, the comments of the podcast post and uh, meet up and have a beer or something at the game. Anyway, thanks for listening. And uh, this has been episode 11 of Let's Talk Tribe. We'll talk again next week. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it. Then, in that moment, you don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done, and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of, like, afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. Hello, I'm Neelai Patel, the editor-in-chief of The Verge and host of Decoder, a business podcast where I interview CEOs about big ideas, the problems that come from those ideas, and how they make decisions. It is also surprisingly about org charts. It comes up a lot. We're launching a new limited series that we're calling the Centennial Series, where I talk to CEOs of companies that are over 100 years old, like Xerox, Barnes & Noble, and more. There's no 100-year-old company that's without its struggles, and it's been fascinating to talk to these CEOs about which parts of these companies' history are important and which parts they can let go. A little spoiler for you, if a company is over 100 years old, there's a lot of drama to talk about. It's been a good time. You can listen to the Centennial series right in the Decoder feed. New episodes of Decoder are out on Tuesday, and the Centennial series is out on Thursdays. Check it out. We think you're really going to like it. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts.